Throughout this season of Mindful, we've been bringing you podcasts recorded by the students in Jim Cresswell's History of Psychology class at the University of Calgary. Today, we're going to hear from two more of them. I'm Eric Bowman, the communications person at the Canadian Psychological Association, and this is Mindful. Today's episode will happen in two parts. In the second part, we're going to get in-depth discussing personality tests. How effective are they and what purpose do they serve? The first part of today's episode is coming up right now. Let's start with Kale Holmes, Melanie Greer, and Manraj Guttora as they explain pro-social behavior theory. This is a collaborative podcast by Melanie Greer, Kale Holmes, Manraj Guttora, and Mark Jen. Today, our topic is the roots and implications of pro-social behavior theory. The late 20th century was an era in psychology that allowed for a flourishing of ideas such as pro-social behavior theory. At mid-century, behaviorism was at the forefront of psychology and stressed empiricism along with the study of observable behaviors. However, clinical psychology was dominated by the psychoanalytic perspective, which remained true until behavior modification treatments became prominent in the 1960s. Psychoanalysis in this setting focused on unconscious impulses and how they could explain one's behavior. Treatment then assumed the individual to be naive of the drives that motivated them to action. Meanwhile, behaviorists in America brought attention to routines, drives, and other causes of observable behaviors. When the importance of these theories on learning was questioned by Skinner in the 1950s, alternate theories and perspectives in the field sprung up shortly after. As this diversity of perspectives took hold in the field of psychology, more humanistic and positive approaches were able to come to light eventually, including pro-social behavior theory. While the shift in perspectives in psychology are what gave space for pro-social behaviors to be better explored and studied, the interest originated earlier. In the mid-1960s, several similar criminal activities exhibited bystander apathy. The most infamous case was that of Kitty Genovese, who was murdered in New York while a supposed 38 neighbors looked on without calling the police. These occurrences were obviously of great concern to psychologists, and they posed many questions. If people held underlying motivations to help, why did help never come? Under what circumstances does prosocial behavior manifest? If prosocial behaviors are context dependent, how can we elicit prosocial behaviors when needed to prevent future cases similar to that of Kitty Genovese? The study of prosocial behaviors expanded in the direction of explanatory mechanisms for prosocial behavior, where two dominant perspectives emerged. Psychologists pointed to several determinants which impact whether an individual will intervene in a given situation. In general, the exploration of pro-social behaviors diverged along two pathways as more evidence emerged, evolutionary and social explanations. Evolutionary psychology explores biologically adaptive explanations for psychological mechanisms, including preferences, feelings, attitudes, and behaviors. The roots of evolutionary perspectives on pro-social behavior harken back to Charles Darwin's theory of evolution based on natural and sexual selection. This explanatory direction points to a biological foundation for prosocial behavior, suggesting that it is an ingrained trait rather than an exception to the rule. 
Though genetic determinants of behavior are highly implicated in its development and endurance from this perspective, environmental influences are understood as important moderating variables to evolutionary adaptation. Human behavior is not solely biologically determined. Shared genetic makeup, individual traits, social learning, and perception of the immediate social circumstances interact to form behavior. Theorizing about pro-social behavior from an evolutionary approach involves exploring how natural selection favors genes that drive pro-social behavior. Kin selection theory, originally proposed by Darwin in On the Origin of Species in 1859, and later mathematically quantified by Ronald Fisher in 1930 and John Haldane in 1932, suggests that favoring reproductive success of an organism's relatives can be a successful evolutionary strategy, even if that organism's individual fitness is decreased. English evolutionary biologist William Hamilton popularized kin selection theory and coined the term inclusive fitness theory, which offers a mechanism for the development of altruism via evolution. According to this theory, an organism's behavior will persist as a consequence of natural selection if the behavior is likely to increase their own and or their relatives chances of reproduction, thereby passing their genes on to the subsequent generation. If prosocial behavior increases the chances of related others reproducing, genes that promote these behaviors will be propagated through natural selection. Kin selection and inclusive fitness theories help explain altruism towards genetically related others, but why would individuals behave altruistically towards non-related others? American evolutionary biologist and sociobiologist Robert Trivers responded to this question with his reciprocal altruism model in 1971, which supports the hypothesis that altruistic behavior directed at a non-related other occurs with the expectation that the altruistic behavior will be reciprocated later. This theory can be summarized in the adage, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. Trivers notes that cross-species evidence of reciprocal altruism is commonly observed, citing marine cleaning symbioses, warning calls in birds, and altruistic behavior observed in humans as support for his model. Unconvinced that self-interest was at the heart of altruistic behavior, Dutch primatologist and ethiologist Franz de Waal began exploring the idea that empathy evolved as the main proximate mechanism for directed altruism. Empathy can be understood as a perspective taking cognitive action that emphasizes understanding of the other and actively adopts the other's point of view. Asking the question, does empathy channel altruism in the direction evolutionary theory would predict, DeWall separated altruism into three categories, altruistic impulse, learned altruism, and intentional altruism. Intentional altruism can further be distinguished as an intentionally selfish altruism, whereby the actor seeks to benefit themselves, or intentionally altruistic altruism, whereby the actor is aware of how one's behavior will be of help to the other and acts accordingly altruistic. Exploring this latter form of altruism, which DeWall refers to as empathetic altruism. He proposed the perception action mechanism or PAM as a model of empathetic responses, which allows the subjects access to the object's emotional state. 
Perceiving the emotional state of another individual activates shared representations, producing a matched state in the actor, which then stimulates a behavioral response, such as concern for others and active perspective taking. This form of altruism, DeWall suggests, is perhaps the strongest, deriving from high emotional investment in another's well-being and may be particularly physiologically attributed to mirror neurons. Further proposing the Russian doll model to explain empathy, DeWall describes how higher level cognitive functions layer upon a hardwired socio-effective mechanism, such as PAM, to create advanced forms of empathy. This is not to suggest that PAM in and of itself accounts for sympathetic concern or perspective taking, but that it motivates behavior outcomes and lays the foundation for more cognitively complex forms of empathy. According to DeWall, the dynamics of the complex empathy mechanism agree with predictions from kin selection and reciprocal altruism theories, such that it remains a well-accepted pro-social behavior theory within evolutionary psychology. The other pathway that pro-social behavior theory developed from was through social psychology, which examined pro-social behaviors through a lens of social learning, mood, and the ability to empathize with others. These and other elements are what decided whether an individual would take pro-social actions or be a bystander in various situations. This originated with social learning theory, which was proposed in the 1950s by Julian Rotter and was a response to the behaviorist movement. This theory took on behaviorism, but instead suggested that the interaction between an individual and their environment could shape behaviors. Rotter believed that if you change the environment or an individual's perspective, then behaviors could also be changed. He also believed this could happen at any point in the life course. A lot of social learning theorists at the time were highly critical of the behaviorist theories because they didn't consider the impact of social context on behaviors. As this became of more discussion, it eventually paved the way to consider pro-social behaviors and how they could shape individuals and how they could shape social context. These changing social contexts can be seen in the current COVID-19 pandemic, and the promotion of pro-social behaviors is as critical as ever to ensure a limited spread of the virus. Following these pioneers, in the late 1960s, David Rosenhan was one of the first to actually define pro-social behaviors as such. For him, it was about internalized norms. Individuals would act upon these without expecting any sort of return for it. Because of this, he often called pro-social behaviors donating behaviors, as an individual would give up more than they got back in return. This can be seen through the COVID-19 pandemic, where low-risk individuals still follow safety precautions to ensure the safety of other individuals, even though they don't personally benefit from it. Rosenhan seeked to explain the cause for these pro-social behaviors and suggested that mood might impact whether someone would engage in these behaviors. Rosenhan also pointed out the paradoxical nature of pro-social behaviors when he put it in the context of learning theory. He pointed out this theory states that behaviors are reinforced through reward or avoidance of punishment, but altruistic behaviors seem to reap no benefit and instead puts the individual in harm's way, and so it challenges learning theory. He pointed out that these altruistic behaviors are driven by affect, observational learning from others, and cognitive development, which encourages future pro-social behaviors. Following Rosenhan, there was a theory called the Empathy Altruism Hypothesis. This described empathy as a central component of acting in pro-social ways. 
Similar to the way in which Rosenhan critiqued learning theory for ignoring altruism, the empathy-altruism hypothesis challenged egoism as something involved in prosocial behaviors. Instead, it was suggested that prosocial behaviors aren't connected to any personal benefit, and so these actions are driven instead by empathy for the other individual. This brought into question where the motivations originated for taking these actions and having empathy for the other, as they were crucially socially important, again seen clearly through the current COVID-19 pandemic, where the social importance of acting pro-socially impacts directly the spread of the virus. In children, it has been found that there are cultural causes, socialization, moral judgment, and cognition, which can all promote pro-social behaviors, and pro-social behaviors are an empathetic adoption of the other's feelings. This can lead to altruism when the other is in need. Since the expansion of research on pro-social behaviors, there's a continued exploration of figuring out what are the causes of these behaviors and why do they occur? This has been examined cross-culturally, developmentally, and between collectivist and individual cultures, where it's been found that collectivist cultures lead to more altruistic tendencies. While a lot of this research is still quite exploratory, there's a continued search for the explanations and understanding of prosocial behaviors. And this is still of great interest to the social psychology field today. Prosocial behavior theory holds many great implications. Current research into prosocial behavior from both evolutionary and social psychology perspectives converge upon the theory that prosocial behavior is largely ingrained, with individual, environmental, and situational factors mediating responses. Keeping this theoretical landscape in mind, we're able to interact with prosocial behavior theory in meaningful and productive ways that benefit both the individual and the collective. There are a number of reasons regarding why we intentionally engage in prosocial behaviors. These reasons include improving our psychological and physiological well-being and helping maintain stable interpersonal and intergroup connections. Psychologically, altruism benefits the helper by providing a sense of competence and purpose, improving positive mood, experiencing increased social integration, and serving as a distraction during trying times. Adolescents who engage in prosocial behavior demonstrate increased academic functioning and report an overall increase in quality of life seen both in their physical and psychological well-being along with their social relationships. Participating in prosocial behaviors have also been shown to help reduce everyday stress we tend to experience. Physiologically, prosocial behaviors release the hormone oxytocin, which has anxiolytic effects. The hormone oxytocin can temporarily limit the fight-or-flight response and has been shown to result in decreased social anxiety and a decreased fear of talking with strangers. Interventions that facilitate altruism in patients with coronary artery disease have resulted in an increased overall well-being and a decrease in mortality rates with fewer recurring cardiac events. The stress hormone cortisol has also been shown to decrease in those who volunteer. Current research is also looking at how prosocial behaviors can improve cooperation through trustworthiness and likeness. To increase prosocial behaviors within or among a group, it is necessary to emphasize a common group identity. This knowledge can be effectively utilized in pandemic responses. There are many future directions for prosocial behavior theory. The COVID-19 pandemic has provided a modern-day example of why facilitating and promoting prosocial interactions between individuals and groups is important. Though humanity is predisposed to acting prosocially, internal and environmental factors can disrupt this mechanism, which means that the active facilitation of prosocial behaviors in oneself and others is very valuable. Within the context of the pandemic, prosocial behavior theory is a valuable consideration.
While some theorists still argue for universal human egoism, current evidence suggests that altruism is humanity's default state. Therefore, by employing strategies suggested by research, officials can approach the COVID-19 crisis reasonably by focusing on encouraging ingrained pro-social human traits to emerge and repressing self-centered tendencies. Leaders can use knowledge regarding pro-social behaviors to promote unity among citizens and offer education about the benefits of pro-social behavior. If most people are naturally inclined to help others without expectation of rewards, perhaps a hopeful outlook is warranted. As the pandemic continues, some fields like developmental psychology may use pro-social behavior theory to propose curriculum and professional practices that promote collective identity adoption, perspective taking, and altruism. Within a clinical setting, altruistic interventions that stimulate pro-social tendencies will continue to be explored as a treatment option given the psychological and physiological benefits of pro-social behavior. Pro-social behavior theory will undoubtedly continue to draw scholarly attention as the underlying mechanisms behind humanity's natural state of being remains in academic and popular discourse. Understanding self-sacrifice for others' well-being has many immediate applications regarding the COVID-19 pandemic. For example, the inconvenience of wearing a mask in public to protect others from the viral spread makes us question why we act the way we do towards others and what type of motivations lie at the core of our instincts. Accepting that we as humans are inclined to pro-sociality, as the theory presently describes, can not only provide individual benefits for helpers and helpies, but offer hope and inspiration for the collective as well. By using historical knowledge and ongoing research findings, we can promote pro-social behaviors to not only better improve quality of life overall, but such as in the case of the current pandemic, save lives too. This has been a collaborative podcast by Melanie Greer, Kale Holmes, Naraj Katora, and Mark Jen. Thanks to Kale, Melanie, and Manraj for a great overview of pro-social behavior. Their episode was co-written by Mark Jin. Now, we're going to switch gears a little. My next guest hosts recorded a podcast about the Hexaco personality test, but I'm not going to play their podcast. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about personality tests directly. We reached out to Dr. Kiboom Lee at the University of Calgary, who was not able to be interviewed for this podcast, but who answered many questions that we had via email. So in this next part, we'll discuss those answers and the questions with Shekinah Munoz, Julia Pennock, Dorothy Chichinsky, and Gemma Reynolds. First, let's, I, I'd like to know how you guys decided as a group to come up with personality tests as a subject for your project here. Um, so Hexaco was developed at the U of C at the University of Calgary, and um, we were taking a history and theory of psychology course, and we figured um, what best theory to critique than one that had been developed at the UFC. And also personality tests in general um, are just in the mind of the populace as something that was born out of psychology that people um, really look to for answers and self-assessment. And you have uh, Dr. Kiboom Lee at uh, the University of Calgary, which is quite convenient. Was that part of your rationale in choosing this, that you had someone just down the hall that you could go and talk to? Um, well, we didn't uh, necessarily use him for the critique aspect, but um, it certainly um, helped that there was someone uh, in the field in the same area who had developed um, one of the models that we use today for personality testing. And... 
that model is the one that you guys chose to critique. Uh, but I know you looked at many other models along the way, right? Uh, the sort of history of it. Uh, Julia, maybe you can answer this. Where did the idea of personality tests begin and what were the early iterations of them? I think one of the very earliest personality theorists was Galton and he sort of specified that if like if a personality trait exists or something exists, it's going to be in language. So he's really focused on language and how traits come out of language. Um, but yeah, and he sort of developed this lexical of different terms. There's like different, it's kind of hard to explain in general terms. So basically he sort of specified uh, various personality terms that existed. I think he specified four terms specifically, which later in psychology became um, these big five terms that a lot of people are more familiar with. There's, you can remember them by the acronym, acronym OCEAN, which is openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. And those are kind of the big five personality traits where if you talk to a lot of psychologists, they'll say, yeah, these are sort of what makes up someone's personality. And then Hexaco sort of built on the big five theory and added in uh, another trait called honesty, humility. So that was just sort of where it came from, from Galton to the big five and then Hexaco on top of that. All right, excellent. And Gemma, knowing somebody's personality based on these traits that are identified, what good is that? What, what can we do with that? knowing that this is the way somebody perceives the world and perceives themselves? Um, from what I know, a lot of people do use personality tests um, mainly to try and understand themselves. Like I know that's what Dr. Lee kind of created Hexaco for. Other people have tried to use them to predict behavior um, as well as predict job performance. So that's what those tests are often used for. And Shekinah, the Hexaco model, is that the most recent one or have there been developments since then? I know it was created, I believe in the late nineties. Sorry, um, yeah, so like Julia said, uh, we started with the um, lexical hypothesis and then um, Alport and Odbert kind of went into um, descriptions of personality. They came up with 12 factors and then um, Fisk kind of went to five factors after that. Um, Say with Norman, he went with five, um, orthogonal factors, uh, and then that went to Goldberg, uh, big five model. And then, yeah, that was uh, the Hexaco model. All right. And I, I, you know what? I'm, I'm curious here. We're doing this over zoom. This is the new way that life happens. Did you guys know each other before this project? Have you actually met in person or have you guys only met through zoom? We've only ever met through Zoom. We've never met each other in person before. The groups were like randomly assigned in our uh, class. So we just kind of all got put together and worked with it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and how has that changed the way that you went about this? I mean, you had to record a podcast. Dorothy, you did the bulk of the uh, podcast voicing, I believe, uh, if not all of it, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but you had to put it all together as a team. How was that working virtually? 
I feel like when you're doing group projects, uh, especially in university, you have to look at people's strengths and what they're they're most suited for. And so we just kind of identified who's good at what, and we divided the work up that way and everyone contributed meaningfully to the project. It was a lot of uh, management of assigning people to their strengths and that worked out really well. And it sounds like determining people's strengths, uh, you conducted a personality test of sorts. Uh, did you guys all do one ahead of time to figure out where your strengths lay? It's interesting you should say that because a personality test um, cannot um, test for, for strengths or um, skill sets, right? It can only test from a very predefined set of variables. So in Hexaco, um, we've got the six there, um, but it cannot test for skills um, that would have helped us maybe in the podcast. Well, I assume, though, that uh, having done this project, you all did take a personality test of some kind along the way. Uh, would I be mistaken in thinking that you did that? Um, I feel like I feel like we never like specified like, hey, we should do personality tests uh, when we started the project. But I feel like a lot of us had experience doing them either in other classes or just in general. But yeah, personally, I have done a few different ones before. I can't speak for everyone, though. All right. And Julia, the ones that you did before, did they come out with consistent results or were they sort of all over the map? Uh, I feel like they're somewhat consistent, but I've also only done them in like the recent few years that I've been in university. So I don't know how much I've really changed over like two to three years. But for me, at least, there's some consistency across different tests, but of course, different tests might measure different traits. So that might not be reflected across all of them. All right. And one of the things I'm super interested about is the cross-cultural nature of a personality test. And Dr. Lee answered me and said that there tends to be quite a lot of consistency, uh, even when languages describe things in different words or different terms, you know, one language might have a term for something that another language doesn't, uh, but that there is sort of a consistency there. Was that something that you guys looked at when you were doing this project? And, you know, would you say that you were all from different cultures, despite all living in Calgary and being, for the lack of a better term, Calgarians, Albertans? So yeah, we, we do acknowledge that um, there are cultural similarities, um, especially the ones that Hexaco had looked into um, between these personality traits. Um, what that tells me is that there's universal behavior that's kind of common to humanity, right? Doesn't necessarily mean that the cultures are the same, but that there are a set of uh, identifiable traits that are universal across, across every human experience. All right, uh, Gemma, what does that mean going forward then? Let's go back for a second and let's talk about specifically predicting future job performance, right? A lot of people are now saying that traditional things like job interviews are a terrible way of predicting how good somebody actually will be at the job that they're interviewing for, because the questions that are asked are pretty standard, they're boilerplate, and the answers to those questions indicate how well you've prepared for the interview and not necessarily how well you will do the job that you are being asked to do. Uh, would something like a personality test, and also, right, talking about cross-cultural differences, right, that 
people from different cultures are less able to answer the interview questions or to nail an interview in the same way that somebody from the same culture as the interviewer is likely to be able to do it. Something like a personality test being universal, would that be something that might be uh, looked at as a more central part of an interview process in order to eliminate those cultural differences, those uh, things that marginalize communities? I think that's why some job interviewers tried to use personality tests um, to maybe kind of like combat that. But um, if I recall, I think Dr. Lee said that like from people from certain cultures, um, especially from those maybe from like less developed countries may be less familiar with um, the type of questionnaires. So um, personality tests that we use here in North America may not be as universal as we think. Um, I also personally just have quite a problem with uh, people using personality tests when it comes to trying to identify who would be best for a job um, just because of, sorry, I'm just trying to think, um, situational influences, I guess, as well. Um, for instance, how somebody like acts in their personal life um, in a typical situation might be very different from how they act in a professional environment, for instance. That's certainly true. So what you're saying is then, what you are putting on Facebook might be a more accurate reflection of who you are than what you're putting into a job interview. Potentially, yeah, because um, personality tests are supposed to catch the average situation, but I guess the question is kind of, what is that average situation? Is it when you're at home kind of relaxed? Uh, is it when you're around like other friends? Or again, is it when you're in a more professional environment? It's it, it, it's kind of hard to say, especially since quite a few personality tests don't specify that in the questionnaires. Uh, to Julia, uh, what are some of the other issues that might arise with personality tests and the uh, way they're implemented? Sorry, I think one of uh, issues with personality tests, firstly, that I find interesting is the uh, lexical fallacy by Fisk. Uh, I think basically to sort of simplify it, he's basically saying, is my version of extroverted like the same as yours? So it's like when we're talking about a trait like extroversion or openness or agreeableness, is my idea of those traits the same as yours? And it's really hard to really capture if when we are testing someone, are we testing for like our idea of what a trait is or their idea? It's kind of one of those things where it's hard to conceptualize what a trait is. And that's one of the, the major flaws with personality testing that we don't really know what a trait is. So trying to define it in these questions may not be accurate. Right, that makes sense. Uh, now, Dorothy, I have taken many personality tests over the years. Uh, and usually it tells me what house of Hogwarts that I should be in or, uh, you know, what kind of vegetable I am. A lot of the time they come from BuzzFeed, those kind of things. Is there any validity to them? And do they actually do harm if somebody takes them seriously? Um, yeah, so most personality tests that you'll find online for the most part are not scientifically valid and are not scientifically reliable. Um, and there are, uh, Hexaco being one of them and the Big Five being another more modern um, personality model. There are some that are more valid. So 
Um, these online personality tests, um, they really read like a high resolution horoscope in my mind, um, where you're asking questions, okay, um, do you like to be the life of the party? And then you say, yes, highly agree. And then your outcome will be, you know, they'll, they'll say, oh yeah, you really like to be the life of the party. Well, I, obviously, yes, I'm extroverted therefore. So it's not really telling me much more than, than, um, than the questions I kind of asked. It can't really identify anything more in me, but they try to, they try to tell you that you're suited for this career, that um, you're, you're going to be really talented in these regards, uh, but it actually has no correlation to any of these things. They're purely speculative. Is there any harm in using them? Well, it's kind of like any other self-help or self-assessment. Um, maybe it helps improve your mood. Maybe it helps um, give you some ideas of what you could do. But as far as scientifically, there is no validity to most of these tests. That makes sense. Now, something like, you know, I like being the life of the party. Uh, it strikes me that someone could answer that. Like, I do like being the life of the party. But the second part to that is I'm not willing to put a whole lot of effort into being that, right? Like, if it happens that way, terrific. But I'm not going to the party with that intention in mind, right? Uh, so I'm wondering if that's something that it just isn't in depth enough to really give you a definitive answer unless you're taking one of these more scientifically uh, rigorous tests online. So even the scientifically rigorous tests are only testing for a specific set of behaviors and your average of those behaviors. They don't purport to be some sort of magical test that can tell you anything more about yourself than those. Really what they are are a sociological descriptor of who you are based on these common set of universal human behaviors and nothing more. And so people ascribe a lot to these personality tests, but in reality, that's all they were developed for. And currently that's all they're scientifically valid for um, in terms of, let's say job performance, going back to job performance, the correlation with conscientiousness, my understanding is the correlation is quite low. And that's really the only trait that's been somewhat scientifically validated for the purposes of job performance, right? So, so we like to see correlations um, but the general public, what they don't realize is correlation is not causation. So I could be high in conscientiousness, but I could come into a place of work and not care about that work and not do a good job because I'm not motivated. We're not including motivation. We're not including emotion. We're not including people's adaptability. We're not including people's variability. And those are the limitations of any of these personality tests, whether they're scientifically validated models or these online personality tests. All right. Now, Gemma, uh, before I did this, and I will tell you that 90% of my professional career, I based on the fact that I belong in the house Ravenclaw and so far so good. But uh, before I was with the CPA, I was in radio for uh, many years and we, I did a morning show here in Ottawa. And we used to have this retreat every year, I guess you could call it, like every radio morning show across Canada would get together in Toronto and do a series of workshops. And, you know, one of those things where you do trust falls and that. And I remember one year they did the personality test. So 
we each did that and you've got every morning show radio host across Canada who are either one extreme or the other, like super extroverted or super introverted. There's very, very little middle ground there, right? Uh, but they had us do the test, put us in boxes, and then we would decide what we were going to do with our morning show, which was four voices, based on these boxes that they had created for us. And in the end, it sort of caused a lot more problems than I think it solved uh, because our consultant would come in and like, no, you're the one who's supposed to be the dick. So you've chosen dick as your personality. You have to maintain that, right? Uh, is that the kind, and I'm just thinking out loud that that's the kind of problem that you can get into by sort of generalizing what a personality test does and doesn't do. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Um, that is definitely a type of problem, um, especially in your case. I, I think it's quite limiting for somebody to separate different groups depending on somebody's personality. Um, yeah, sorry, I, I'm not sure if anybody else would want to add to that. Yeah, um, you're hitting the nail on the head there with um, why these things are not as magical in describing who we are as we'd like to think. Um, you have to keep in mind once again that these are attempting to capture an average. They will not capture your variability. They will not capture the entire part of your personality. And let's say these personality tests, they tell me I am highly extroverted. Well, maybe that's not the most important part of my personality. Maybe what defines me is actually something that's not a trait. Maybe it's my anger. Maybe I'm a very angry person. We don't even use emotions like anger as part of what we capture as personality. So, so there are many issues there where um, we're trying to use an approach that's meant to um, describe a group, but we're trying to fit it to an individual and it just doesn't make sense. All right, so I wanna go through each of you and ask how doing this project and becoming more aware of personality traits and tests and the way that this all works, uh, whether it's affected you, whether you actually think about this kind of thing uh, regularly. Gemma, you're unmuted. Let's start with you. Yeah, so actually this kind of reminds me, I'm thinking back into high school when we were um, taking different personality tests to try and like see if there was a job we would best fit into. And um, I personally hated it. <laughs> um, a lot of the jobs that I felt I wanted to do, such as working in the social sciences and working with other people, apparently I wasn't well suited for them because I tended to be, at that point I scored quite low on extroversion. Um, I was definitely a bit more of a shy person, but you know, I still really loved being around people. I just wasn't maybe the life of the party, if you will. Um, and it's kind of funny actually, cause going into university, I was actually in Dr. Lee's um, personality class. And out of curiosity, I did take um, the Hexco personality test and my extroversion on that test was quite high. So I wasn't really too sure what was going on there. Um, but either way, like doing this project, I think kind of helped explain why my um, scores maybe differed a bit. And it also definitely helped me realize that, yeah, a, a test isn't going to make like I don't know, I just remember at time in the high school, I was just very, feeling very discouraged over seeing that, like I wasn't suited for the job that I wanted. And now I kind of see that it doesn't really like matter. It's not really applicable right now. Quick aside, 
when I was in high school, I took one of those personality tests also. And I was in grade 12. At that time here in Ontario, we had 13 grades. We went up to OAC, Ontario Academic Credits. It was the 13th grade. And uh, I hadn't taken any biology through all of high school. And I just got my first girlfriend and I wanted nothing more than to stay home for the summer and spend time with her. My family was going out to Winnipeg for the summer. And so I purposefully manipulated that personality test so that it would say that I should be a doctor because I knew that was my mom's dream for me. But in order to be a doctor, I had to have my OAC uh, biology. And in order to get that, I had to do grade 12 biology in summer school. So I had to stay home. Right. And uh, so <coughs> I do think that those tests are easily uh, messed withable. Uh, by the way, it did work out. I got to stay home for that summer. I did grade 11 biology, never became a doctor. Uh, Shekinah, what about you? Has this affected the way you look at things now uh, in any way? Do you think about this? Um, yeah, so something that I'm actually eating more often on social media is um, like the 16 personalities test. Um, like I'll see it like INTJ or whatever on people's um on people's bios and I just think at those I, I just look at those a bit more critically I think I'm like okay um so how does that affect um like how you present yourself to us let's say like on the in the context of social media um and yeah and that's also a test that I actually took um I think it, um my type's been different every time so um yeah just that like it does change across um lifetimes and who I am now um, might not be reflective of who I will be in the future. And that's like something that um, doing this project has definitely helped me um, understand better. For sure. That's why I have taken the, uh, I am Groot of the Avengers out of my bio on Twitter because it's not scientifically valid anymore. Uh, Julia, how about you? Uh, I think the pro this project for me mainly gave me a bit more of understanding of the flaws in personality tests because growing up, I actually really liked personality tests. I still kind of do like them. I think they're just kind of fun to do, but I think the main point is that you shouldn't take them too seriously. Like they do have some predictive validity, but I don't know if they're going to predict everything. I don't think you rigging your test means you're gonna be a doctor. Even if you hadn't rigged your test, I don't think that necessarily means you're going to be a doctor. I think it's important to understand personality tests. They can be used for some purposes, like if you want for like they are often used for job interviews, but I don't think it should be solely based on personality tests. Your ability to do a job or to have a certain career depends on different, more basically on like the skills that you can perform rather than these arbitrary traits that are kind of hard to define. So I think learning a bit like how we came up with the personality traits and where they came from really helped like show me like, yes, personality tests are fun, but maybe not the most accurate. Right. All right, Dorothy, uh, I would ask you the same question, but I do want to talk about one thing. We, I love the phrase high resolution horoscope. And it strikes me, I'm envisioning it as somebody has added a tiny bit of scientific validity to astrology 
and now you can sort of actually uh, look at the stars and predict something in some tiny small way but it's still basically for fun. It, am, I, am I being accurate there when you're, is that what you're thinking high resolution horoscope means? Yeah, and I think, um, yes. So the reason why it reads to me like a high resolution horoscope is <clears throat> that it's not saying anything about me that I first of all didn't already know. And second of all, it's a big generalization. So when I look at personality tests, I say, Hmm, that's interesting, but we all have capacities to grow. We all have capacities to change. We all have capacities to do other things with our life. And despite our, our deep wanting to understand ourselves and to have the answers and to neatly label things, I don't think these are the, this or any other test really can do that. Humans are too complex for that. Um, and when I read these things, I go, um, well, that's nice. Uh, interesting. And that's about it. Right. Okay. Can a personality test uh, predict whether or not I'm cheap? It could certainly, um, the current models that we have are, don't specifically test for that because they're only testing from a set of, of traits, but a trait, um, let's say honesty, humility, um, could correlate with your cheapness, but not necessarily predict or indicate. It could have a weak correlation, but it won't say for certain whether you are cheap. Uh, I'm asking only because I have the free version of Zoom and it's going to kick us off in five minutes. I will say thank you all for being here and thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Uh, it's been great meeting all of you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you. Um, real quick, if I could add in, even though we were critiquing um, a little, even though we mentioned Texaco and we're critiquing the theoretical foundations, I do want to make clear that Dr. Lee, um, who helped create Hexco, um, does not condone using um, it for, you know, like job interviews and everything, or basically for the very reasons we pointed out in this critique. So just wanted to make that clear. It's more as a universal sociological descriptor. Yes, 100%. All right. Thank you. We will certainly uh, put that in also. See you guys. Take care and thank you again. Thank you so much. That does it for this episode of Mindful. Our hosts today were Kale, Melanie, Manraj, Dorothy, Shekinah, Gemma, and Julia. The show was written by Mark, Kale, Manraj, Dorothy, Melanie, Gemma, Julia, and Shekinah. It was edited and produced by me, Eric Bullman, and our theme music is Avenues by David Taylor.